Governor Pritzker stepped up efforts to get more COVID relief funds from Washington, warning that a lack of action could lead to an across-the-board spending cut and a billion-dollar reduction in aid to public schools. And it's time for our weekly check-in with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, for a look at news in the local housing market. And we've talked quite a bit about how, how very hot the West Loop is. The number of one, three, five million dollar condos selling in the West Loop in the past few years is just eye-popping. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Thursday, September 17th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Goo. Hello and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. We're joined, as we are every week, by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, in his car. Welcome, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm great, thanks. There's, uh, as we, we were talking about just before air, there's a whole lot of construction going on next door. So if you hear hammering, jackhammering, that's what's going on. I'm just living, I'm living the residential real estate life is what I'm doing right now. I thought you were finally building out the grand studio that you deserve. Thank you. I wish that I was. However, there's just a building being rehabbed next door. So let's look forward to those noises. All right. We've got a lot of things to talk about today. Let's start with uh, this recent story of yours. The city has the fewest number of houses for sale in over 13 years. Is that about people not wanting to move in this moment that we're in? Or what is that about? Well, I think some of it is people not wanting to move. And some of it is people uh moving, snapping them up, buying up people who want to move, buying up everything that comes on the market. Uh, The data from the Chicago Association of Realtors goes back 13 years to the beginning of 2007. It's very likely that the the inventory numbers are below uh, 2007, 2006 and and before. But all we can say definitively is uh, since since early 2007, there haven't been this few single family homes on the market. Uh, And so we've reported that over the course of the past several years, it keeps dropping and getting lower. And every once in a while, I write that it's crossed another benchmark. One of the sort of revealing things now that really does appear pandemic related is as single family home inventory drops and continues dropping, condo and townhouse inventory, which is primarily condos, is going up. Those two lines, they look like a bell. One is going down, one is going up because the demand for condominiums seems to be off because, you know, as we've discussed on here, to get to my condominium, I may have to pass through common areas. I may have to use an elevator, all those kinds of things that are sort of intimidating at this time. Um, And at the same time, people uh, either in small houses, in rentals, in condominiums are buying up to bigger houses where they can get a yard, Um, They may, we both work at home and so we both need offices. We're tired of working on the kitchen counter. Uh, And so there's been such a flurry of sales that virtually everything that comes on in some of these neighborhoods, especially the ones that are sort of, um, they're like suburban neighborhoods in the city, far Northwest side, Edison Park, far Southwest side, Beverly, um, they have 
very, very tight inventory. It's it's the tightest in places like that. Um, there's about a month's worth of homes, houses on the market. Uh, and as we've discussed before, a healthy market has four to six months. The citywide inventory figure is about three months. But in those sort of semi-suburban areas where you get a yard, but you're still in the city, it's down around one month. So you mentioned common areas that may be less of a draw right now. There's a story up about pandemic-friendly condos that could be coming to the West Loop. What does that mean to, for a condo to be pandemic-friendly? Uh, it's big. Wendell Hudson wrote this story. Uh, there's a developer who's done quite a bit in the in the West Loop, and we've talked quite a bit about how, how very hot the West Loop is. The number of one three, five million dollar condos selling in the West Loop in the past few years is just eye popping. Uh, and new developments come on all the time. Now proposed by a developer named Zev Solomon, uh, Wendell wrote, there's a building coming up where everything is at least four bedrooms and has an office, outdoor space, that sort of thing. I mean, these are designed for city families where we have kids, they might need a classroom or a schoolroom space. One or more of the adults needs an office. So the idea is you get enough space at these condos, which are priced, I think, about $1.5 to $3.5 million. Uh, you get the kind of space that people are looking for out in those suburban neighborhoods we were talking about or semi-urban neighborhoods we were talking about. But you get it in the hot West Loop where all those things you love are the the restaurants and the, the, the parks and, and just the fact that you're downtown. I think that's going to be interesting to see how pandemic-friendly language starts to creep into various marketing materials, not just in housing, yeah. but in, in other things. Of course, you can market almost anything that way. This is really the first we've seen that is designed that way. I mean, here's a condo developer saying, I've got property, I was going to put something on it. And now before putting something on it, I'm going to design it to meet these needs that people have newly during this crisis and probably over the long term going ahead, going forward. So what is the timeline for something like that to be available? Well, he's just announced, so you wouldn't be able to move in in less than a year. But if you're looking at this as your long term choice, you know, you may I've, I've been hearing about people who are renting in the suburbs temporarily uh, to get the space and stuff. So maybe you do something like that and then come back to this condo when it suits your your post pandemic life or when it's delivered and suits your post pandemic life. But it would be at least a year before you'd be in, probably more. Another story you've written about recently is um, August and high-end home sales. I know that's a number that you track and you keep tabs of. What have you seen there for the month of August? Well, sort of related to the two things we've just discussed, there is a lot of movement. Um, up at the upper end of the market in August, there were 10 home homes sold at prices over $4 million dollars. The typical month is, on an average month, I should say, is about four sales. Going back over the past few years, we generally have about four sales in the city and suburbs at $4 million and up. We had 10 in August. About half of those were in the suburbs. And what I heard from agents is, in many cases, it was that same move-up thing. I want more space, but I'm paying 4 $5 million. So more space to me is I want private beach on Lake Michigan. I want a very large and grand house, that sort of thing. And one of the things that happens at, uh, at that end of the market is I can make this quick lifestyle change because I have other assets. I don't have to wait to sell the house I have. My current house isn't necessarily going to fund the purchase of my next house. I may 
keep my city house and move to the suburbs. I may uh, put it on the market, but not have to go. So we're seeing a more sort of pronounced move at that end of the market. The numbers are smaller because we don't see that many sales, but it's quicker because they've got these assets and can go. And I should say half the sales were in the city and half in the suburbs. So this is, again, not one of those things where we're seeing people hightailing it for the suburbs. You mentioned kind of what the normal market is versus this one. Going into September, when we look back at those numbers, do you expect that to be flat to August or a little bit lower? Well, I think what what agents were telling me, I haven't seen too many others go under contract just yet. So I don't know what, what the closings will be in September. We're halfway through the month. Unless a whole lot of things close in September, we're not going to see anything like uh, August. But agents were telling me that there's a lot of action and we may, you know, the longer this pandemic drags on, the longer people really start to think, uh, yeah, my life might be changing, if not permanently, then long term, the more we see these sales. So it's possible that September, October, November, we see quite a bit, but I think it would be very unlikely to see that August figure carry forward. All right. So let's switch to looking at some houses now. Always my favorite part of the show. I want to start with uh, this house in Bucktown. This is so interesting because I don't, I can't think of a house that looks like this one. This is a rehab and it's been transformed into this kind of green roof, single family home that is just really creatively done. Tell me about this place. They did some great stuff. So they had a 19th century building that like a lot of those old primarily old commercial buildings in Chicago neighborhoods, it goes lot line to lot line. So, you know, they couldn't have a yard. So they they created outdoor space. We're going to see the photo of the roof, but first this is outdoor space that they carved out of the middle of the building. So they essentially gave up some indoor space. It's two stories high. It's open to the sky. And so the interior rooms of this, well, newly, newly rehabbed house, Several of them open onto this courtyard. The kitchen opens right out to it. The dining room opens right out to it, which is not the sort of thing you can get uh, in in many city layouts. And if we can go up to the roof, we can see, um, if we can go up to the roof photo, we can see all that is green roof. Everything you see there from left to right is green roof. It's on two different layers. You can see a, a large rectangle sort of toward the bottom of the house footprint, that's up a a flight and there's dining space underneath it. And then those two sort of L shapes, one on the left and one on the right are green roof garden. There are solar panels, there are patios. And then if, if you continue to look at that photo, there are the two L's, the other rectangle, and there's a black void there. That's the channel down to that courtyard we saw. And then there's one more outdoor space that you can't see. It's hidden under the trees. It's one flight down and it's off the main bedroom. So they've got essentially a yard, a a suburban sized yard, a yard that anybody in the city would be lucky to get this much square foot footage, but it's up on the roof. This is really just so creative the way you can kind of like they've kind of engineered a yard for themselves. So here's here's a look at these these lawn chairs. I mean. That's a yard. That's a yard. <laughs> you would use it that is. like a yard. And you know what's interesting? Your yard, while you're lying out there tanning, your yard is actually working because the plants are insulating the building. Um, they're collecting rainwater when there is rain, though, of course, you wouldn't be sitting out on the lounge chairs at that time. They're, um, these. It's planted with what's known as steppables. Um, they're succulents and herbs and things so that it's it's more like you have a rooftop meadow than like a flat blanket of lawn. 
Uh, and again, they're, so the plants are working, you know, they're absorbing rainwater, they're insulating the building. It's a pretty cool thing. That's I mean, it's not unique to, to see this, but it is pretty unusual to see that people are actually sort of sunbathing right out in the middle of it. Yeah, that's right. Let's take a look at some more photos uh, from this house because there's really some interesting spaces here. And and what I think is really striking about this, when you're looking at the outside of the house, and, and for people listening later, head to chicagobusiness.com and check out these photos, you would never know by looking at the outside of this house from the street level that that's what's inside, that waiting for you. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. What I like is they kept this sort of commercial storefront look to the corner, um, which is, you know, a real classic Chicago or any urban neighborhood in any city look. It looks like an old bar or bookstore or who knows what um, on the corner. And but inside it's their library and the rest of the building really just looks it could still be an apartment building. And uh, what I like is it sort of holds up to that Chicago slogan, look up, which has primarily to do with downtown architecture. But if you were walking on Levitt or Lindale here, uh, it's on the corner of the two and you looked up, you might figure out that there's this green roof complex up there, which really it's like a nice payoff from the sidewalk. Yeah. And this little library that that's on that street level, what a beautiful little room. How would you yeah. not spend all of your time there? That's so pretty. Well, I think the reason you wouldn't spend all your time there is you'd be invited, you'd be beckoned to come up to that roof space. That's right. What'd you call it? The the rooftop meadow? <laughs> yeah, the meadow. And then there's the, the covered space. It's pretty remarkable. Then that's they right. have sort of a formal living room. They, you know, they, it, 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 it needs a space like this, um, but I think you're likely to honestly to pass right through because so many of the other rooms have more of a, a sizzle to them or the outdoor spaces do. This is a very nice room. I don't mean to diss it. I just think that um, this is more conventional than some spaces in this house. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a great problem to have? Yeah, That's, right. Like my outdoor spaces are so beautiful and lovely that it's hard for me to pay attention to my very beautifully decorated home. <laughs> my beautiful living room with the cut stone fireplace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like I say, right. I don't mean to diss it. I just, I mean, there's so much to this house. It's gorgeous. There's uh, there's a bathroom picture coming up that I want to really ogle a oh, bit. Oh, yeah. The kitchen yeah, is the really nice. Is like a... And then there's this cool little room that's like a tatami mat, airplane. What's going on with this room? So I thought it was probably inspired by something like they were at a sake bar in Tokyo and they said, let's recreate it or something like that. They said, no, they really just, you know, they, they were going to put a lounge in the basement and various pictures they had sort of came together like this. So it, it's, it looks sort of like the fuselage of a plane or maybe a train car or something like that, but it's all built in. All of this stays when they sell the house and it's got these nice, Everything here is bamboo with the nice curved ribs and the storage benches with the banquettes on top. And uh, it's it's a pretty cool room. It's it's interesting that it's in the basement, right? I mean, like you're not on the first floor in a showcase room. You've come down to the basement to this kind of a space, which is yeah. quite cool. Yeah, that's a very cool room. Okay, let's let's do this master or no, we don't. I'm sorry. The primary bathroom. That's what primary bathroom, the primary bedroom, right. the primary bedroom and primary bathroom. I mean, look at those. What beautiful spaces that tub, that tile. Yeah. So gorgeous. I love this columned tub. I love the tile you mentioned on both sides, left and right is textured. It it's sort of like chinka brick where some of the tiles turn out. Essentially, mm -hmm. it's very textured. But to me, the best thing is this sort of columned bathtub. Yeah. It feels like it's like a four poster bed or something like that. It's just got a really nice 
sort of a very stately kind of a feeling to it. Not much of the house says stately. It mostly says, you know, exotic resort. But I think this is pretty cool. And it also picks up the look of the um, sort of intimate space on the, the main bedroom suites outdoor space, which I think is our next photo. Yeah, this little outdoor space is really... Now, where is that yeah. in, in relation to the, the bird's eye view that we were seeing earlier? This would be... So we saw a high level and then a, a bigger second or lower level. This is below that. This was all concealed by trees in that photo. Um, so this is down below what we already saw and sort of sticking out to the side, uh, not to the side, sticking out to the end. And so you've got another little sort of columned space like your bathtub. They've got a koi pond. Uh, there are planters where you might grow food or you might grow vines or whatever else. You know, a lot of people in the suburbs have a place. There's like a courtyard off the main bedroom suite, if, especially if you're on the first floor. Here, you're on the second floor and you've already got this massive green roof. And yet you have this sort of bedroom garden. And a koi pond. I mean, who has pond. that? That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah that's There's a lot of really special spaces in this house so there are and the price here we should say is a little over 3.4 million a little bit more than i have by 3.4 so that's fine someone will find it and love that house and i'll just admire it from afar okay another very gorgeous house i want to talk about is a david hovey glass and steel house it's on the market for the first time since the 1980s so he designed this house for friends in the early years of his career there's a lot of creative use of space in this one as well there is and uh, speaking of price this is about a tenth the price of the other one this is 339,000. it's in homewood it's a um it, it's remarkable david hubby uh, built towers that people might recognize in Streeterville, just east of the Tribune Tower. Um, there are several in downtown Evanston, big ones next to the Edens near the Holocaust Museum in Skokie. Big, beautiful, glassy towers, very modernist, very sort of Miesian and wonderful. Those are much later in his career. This is back, those are, um, I think everything I just mentioned is from the late 90s or or 2000s. This is from the early 1980s. He's just gone into practice for himself. He had worked, I think he had worked for Helmut Jan, I believe. And he's gone into uh, practice by him uh, on his own. And he's got some neighbors, uh, his kids and their kids, his and his wife's kids, I should say. Eileen was an integral part of his company. They've both retired. Um, their kids played with some kids next door and the, and the parents said, hey, could you design us a house? And they did. he did for a, a really nice site in Homewood. It's on a sort of sandy um, hillside, a shallow hillside with green, with uh, park space, green space, forest preserve all around. And he built this so that it was essentially one long white bar jutting off that uh, sandy spit. It's made of steel and glass. The side panels, when they're not glass, are steel bolted to the steel beams. The ceilings are steel. One of the things I should point out is that the ceilings and the walls are insulated. People asked, you know, when it rains on those steel ceilings, are you hearing the rain the whole time? And no, it's actually sort of a sandwich. There's a layer of steel insulation and then a layer of steel. So you don't have to worry about that. It's that uh, partnership of human made and nature because you're, you know, you're looking at steel, which couldn't be more human made out at trees. It's a really I just get a kick out of it. Um, the people who built it in 1983 or the man who had it built in 1983 is now selling it. 
He's 70 years old and has moved on. Um, and they've just put it on the market this week for the first time since it was built in, in uh, 1983 at 339,000, which, you know, we've talked about this sort of thing before you put that in the Northern suburbs and the price immediately doubles or more. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty cool place. It is a neat house. Okay. So you mentioned some of his other buildings that people might know. The one east of the Tribune, it has that big colorful facade on the front of it, kind of in the little turnaround. Right. There are two. One, I uh, I might get this wrong. One is sort of green glass with a black bottom. And I think the other is more blue glass with a red bottom. And then the red and black of the two buildings mix. But they're called, they have, uh, David Hovey and Eileen Hovey had a company, have a company called Optima, their son and daughter run it now. And most of their buildings have Optima in the name. And I think those two are maybe Optima Center. And um, But yeah, they're two tall, very tall. Uh, They're what Blair Kamen of the Chicago Tribune calls sliced minimalism because Mm. they're big blocks of glass with like one big gash through it that would be an amenity floor, a party floor um, from the street. It looks like a gash, but from up there, it looks like open space between two floors. And and then the other one uh, that you mentioned, that's kind of right off the Edens off to the side that it's like two towers separated by a couple of little, looks like walkthrough spaces. Giant. Yeah. And there are big holes. There are big voids so that I may be uh, way up on something like the 10th floor, but I'm, and I'm looking through the building at another floor at another building because he's, he's created these, this arrangement where uh, it's not just a big, a big slab of glass. It's a, large wall with holes in it. it they're they're both very nice buildings and anybody uh if you if you were driving north and you had old orchard on your right these buildings would be on your left and they're impossible to miss they rise up out of the forest preserve anybody would have seen them who's driven that direction yeah i i once you said that i was like ah i know what that building is yeah um and okay. they say optima in fact the word optima is at the top so back to this house, this yeah. bedroom is so, I mean, that looks like a resort, right? That Like to wake up and see the forest preserve. That's lovely. Yeah. To have all those trees right outside. Now, so this is the main bedroom. One, one of the questions here is this was built as a three bedroom house, three rather small bedrooms, three 1983 sized bedrooms. And so when their kids grew up, they combined to the main bedroom and the second bedroom into this, which is larger. So right now it's really a two bedroom house with a with this larger one and then one that is half this size. If you need more than two bedrooms and you convert it back to three, you kind of have three small ones. There may be other things you can do, but that is the one thing that buyers are going to really pay attention to is there are very few bedrooms and it's kind of hard to uh, reconfigure without giving up a lot of space in the master in the main suite. Switching gears a bit to another house. There is a Frank Lloyd Wright house that has sold for, I had to look at this story twice because I thought for sure you had left off a zero somewhere. It sold for $135,000. What is the story here? Well, you know, it's, it's both a happy story and a sad story, really. Um, The people who bought it in 2004 for, let me be sure I get it right. Yeah. In 2004, it sold for $240,000. Uh, needed some rehab. That buyer ended up dying. And so this has been on the market for quite a while. The price came down and the price came down and the price came down and it sold uh, early September for 135000 And the buyer said to me, 
you know, I've never seen a Frank Lloyd Wright that can be afford, afforded by mortal men. And I think that's why people have really responded to this is the idea that a Frank Lloyd Wright house went for that little. But one thing to keep in mind is that he has to do a lot of work to it. He has to put, look at all that roof and he's got to replace it both on the house, which you can see in the foreground and the barn slash garage, which you can see in the background. He has to replace all that roof and he thinks it's going to be about $50,000 because you need uh, you need a roof that's approved by preservation standards, but also insulates the house. And so it's going to be an expensive roof. He has to do some other work. So he's got to spend a minimum of about $70,000 on a house that he spent $135,000 on. Then you have a $200,000 house in West Pullman where houses of this size generally are in the $180,000 range. So, I mean, I, everybody's happy he's doing it. I certainly am very happy he's doing it. He's going to do it over the course of years, uh, but it does, th that price kind of goes away when you think of what he has to spend on it to, to get it back up. That looks like a, a very big lot right there. Is it like a, a couple of lots combined? I think it might be nearly a triple city lot. I'm sorry that I don't have that in my in my mind, it was the interesting thing about this house is it was built as a summer home. It's in West Pullman, uh, which at the time was not in the city. And um, there was a, a, a the West Pullman Land Development Company was selling lots for summer houses down there. And this was used by an executive of the West Pullman Land Company as their summer home. They lived, I, I'm not quite sure, they either lived in the Hyde Park or farther north on the south side. And they would only use this on weekends or while he was showing clients around. The area was called Stewart Ridge. And um, there were only a few houses built around this era. Later, it becomes bungalows and things like that. But uh, th this stands out in so many ways. It was a summer home. It's by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's on this larger piece of land. It's got those soaring roofs inspired by Japanese pagodas. There's nothing like it. Well, really anywhere, but in particular in its part of West Pullman. And what about the interior? Is he looking at a lot of renovation there? You know, he said it was mostly in pretty good shape. There's there's not a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright detail left. All the wood, of course, that banded wood is typical of Wright. And there's that wonderful fireplace, which has sort of a Gothic arch, which is almost certainly original. Um, probably is, but I don't want to say it is because we don't know for 100% for sure. Uh, so there's not much on the interior that, that says Frank Lloyd Wright. But part of that is because it's an early house by right. And part of it is that it's, it's you know, it's been around for 100 and, uh, 114 years. It had one owner from about 1916 till 2004 or one family uh, owned it from 1916 to 2004. So probably it looks pretty original, but we don't really know for sure. What an interesting backstory on the house, though, that it was, you know, sitting there and then it was just kind of used as a summer home. So that probably like took out a lot of wear and tear on it. And part of, part of the reason it's in the shape it's in. That would primarily be early on. I think from 1916, it was, it was a full-time house. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, it, but it also has sat empty for, I think uh, uh, for several years since the last owner passed away. I think that's six years. I don't recall exactly. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep tabs on this house. And I mean, I, I look at that roof and I'm like, I don't want to put a new roof on that. That looks like a nightmare of a project. So good luck to that yeah. guy with yeah, that. But exactly. I think that's cool that he's, you know, that he's taken this house on and, and he has big plans for it. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? A couple of things. Um, we have some data that shows that in certain suburbs, home sales doubled in August from a year before. So we're seeing some of that movement 
uh, either to or within the suburbs. You remember last week we talked about the the lawsuits by buyers of Vista Tower condos. I've looked at, uh, taken a deeper look at Vista. They broke ground four years ago this month. They're this month getting ready to start delivering some delivering condos later this year. They're starting to finish things up. Um, so a lot happens in four years. And I've sort of looked at the many changes that have happened there. And that story will be out on Monday. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks so much to you, Dennis Rodkin. And thanks to Deputy Digital Editor Sarah Zimmerman, who produced this live stream, showed all of the photos along the way. And of course, thanks to Wintrust, our sponsor. Coming up, a new program aims to help Black entrepreneurs in Chicago get access to cash. We'll talk more about that and other stories right after this. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com SBL. Governor J.B. Pritzker increased his efforts to get more COVID-19 relief funds from Washington, warning that a lack of action could lead to an across-the-board spending cut of as much as 15 percent and a $1 billion reduction in aid to public grade and high schools. In a letter to the state's congressional delegation, the governor pointed a few fingers at Washington Republicans who've held up such aid but took care to emphasize that COVID has impacted revenues for states across the country, regardless of political affiliation. Pritzker cited research by Moody's saying that states collectively face budget shortfalls of $312 billion by mid-2022, $500 billion if local governments are included, and he said that Illinois alone faces a $6.5 billion hole in fiscal years 2020 and 2021 combined. So while many Republicans have urged the state to slash unneeded spending, Pritzker wrote in the letter, quote, there's a big difference between addressing inefficiencies and cutting vital services for the people we serve. Already, the fiscal 2021 state budget balanced with a loan of up to $5 billion from the Federal Reserve froze spending on early childhood, primary and secondary education, as well as colleges. And in other news, Pritzker also extended the state's moratorium on evictions for another 30 days, citing the COVID-weakened local economy. And he said he would not allow all school athletic programs, particularly football, to start back up. The governor said that the Big Ten, which recently announced college football will return, and professional teams offer protections that local school districts simply can't provide. United Airlines and its pilots union leaders have reached an agreement not to furlough any pilots before June. An agreement was approved by leaders of the Airline Pilots Association and now gets voted on by pilots starting Monday. That, according to a memo from the union chairperson. The company recently had planned to furlough more than 2,800 pilots or about 25% of the pilot workforce, and this agreement would delay such furloughs until next summer. The union and United have been working to avoid layoffs. The airlines trying to preserve maximum flexibility to restore flights if travel demand suddenly begins to rebound. And if pilots are furloughed, the carrier could incur costs and delays related to training that could affect its ability to quickly add to flight schedules. In any case, under the terms of the deal announced by the pilots union, United also agreed to restrictions on the amount of flying that can be done by regional airline partners, which generally fly smaller planes and have lower labor costs. 
Chicago Financial Services Company Mesero Financial said CEO and President Dominic Mondi will hand the chief executive title back to chairperson Richard Price effective immediately, but will retain his president role and leadership of the capital markets unit. And of the company's capital markets unit, Mondi, who took the CEO title just two years ago, said in an interview that the unit has become so busy this year that it requires more of his attention. He will also stay on the company's board of directors. Mondi referenced Mesereau's work last month as an underwriter on a public-private partnership financing deal for outsourcing development of a new outpatient surgery center at UIC to illustrate new work prompted by the pandemic. He also said that he asked the board recently to let him give the CEO title back to Price so workers will be clear about who's handling those particular responsibilities. Mesereau has offices throughout the U.S. as well as in London and Hong Kong. A new initiative aims to help Black technology startups and Black entrepreneurs gain more access to venture capital. The Black Founders Development Program from Dublin-based Accenture will focus on North America and aims to expand internationally by 2021 and will concentrate initially on helping companies in Chicago, Atlanta, and D.C. That according to the global open innovation leader for Accenture Ventures, who said that Black startup tech companies, quote, currently receive less than 1% of funding from venture capitalists today. And continuing by saying there's a lot of innovation and opportunities left on the table when it comes to Black entrepreneurs. The program aims to help Black owners advance and grow their technology business through direct access to venture capital, corporate membership, and strategic connections with business partners as well as clients. But Black tech executives in Chicago told Cranes that while the program is a good start, more needs to be done to help Black-owned businesses. Robert Blackwell Jr., who's founder and CEO of EKI Digital and chairman of the U.S. Black Business Participation Task Force for the Congressional Black Caucus, said a lack of funding is not the central challenge facing Black entrepreneurs, citing a lack of high-profile representation. Thomas Stovall, who's founder and president of tech firm Candid, also agreed that funding is not the only gap that prevents Black businesses and entrepreneurs from being successful saying, quote, what's missing most in the black community is relationship building with other businesses and not a lack of access to capital. Find more detail on this story as well as on many others at chicagobusiness.com. After 98 years as a mainstay in Lakeview, Southport Lanes, known for its manual pen setters, next week will close its doors for good. The neighborhood bar, bowling alley, and billiards hall on North Southport is set to close September 27th, but the owner says it could reopen if a buyer is found. Owner Steve Sobel said the business couldn't survive COVID, which restricted patrons from safely bowling, among other activities. And although Southport reopened in July for dining and drinking, Sobel said it didn't regain the flow of customers it once saw. About 15 workers will lose their jobs with the closure. Sobel said he will still operate district brew yards in the West Loop, which he said has plenty of outdoor seating and is more of what he called pandemic proof. The history of Southport Lanes dates back to the 1900s when it was first called The Nook and built by Schlitz Brewery. In 1922, the name changed to its current one, and the four bowling lanes were added. And at some point in the 1920s, the tavern also included an upstairs brothel, equipped with a dumbwaiter that was used to bring refreshments to the women and their customers. (music) 
And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.